Do you like sports? Do you like art? What about science? Giraffes? Giraffe scientists that paint rugby games? It's all available on Audible, the biggest audiobook site with the largest selection of audiobooks this side of the inner solar system. No need to use your boring old eyes anymore. The ears are the future, my friend. Why, you're using them right now. So check out Audible and get your listen on. Go to www.readlearnlivepodcast.com slash audible to start your 30-day free trial today. So part, part of, I think, what's going on when we relate in a, a sort of confused way to the value of other options is to take regret or the sense of, of sort of missing out as inevitably a sign that something went wrong. In fact, it's inevitable even when things go right. It's, it's a sign of something, of a healthy appreciation of the diversity of good things in life. Hello and welcome to Read, Learn, Live, the podcast about improving yourself through literature. I'm your acclaimed host, John Manaster. I'd like to welcome you to episode 33, the one set in Boston. As always, if you have ideas for books you'd like to see featured or of authors you want to put me in touch with, you can reach me at j-o-n at readlearnlivepodcast.com. Today, I'm delighted to have, the, to have the opportunity to speak with author Kieran Sedia about his book, Midlife, A Philosophical Guide. Kieran teaches philosophy at MIT, working mainly in ethics, epistemology, and the philosophy of mind. In addition to Midlife, A Philosophical Guide, he is the author of Practical Knowledge and Reasons Without Rationalism and Knowing Right from Wrong. His work has been featured in Aeon, Hi-Fi Nation, Y Radio, Five Books, The Guardian, and The New York Times. He's also written about baseball and philosophy. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Read, Learn, Live podcast. My name is John Monaster. I am here with Kieran Setia, author of Midlife, A Philosophical Guide. Kieran, say hello. Uh, hi. Hello. <laughs> uh, thanks so much. I'm very happy to be here on the campus of MIT uh, in a different office besides Kieran's. Yes, we're, bo- we're borrowing a colleague's office because it's much quieter than my actual office. That's right, and with a beautiful view of Boston, so that's always lovely. Um, so I'm really excited today. Uh, Kieran, you wrote this great book, Midlife, A Philosophical Guide, and it's all about sort of the idea of a midlife crisis and how to approach it uh, through a philosophical lens. So I, I always like to ask uh, my guests to kind of just start off with a real brief summary of kind of the major points or, of the book. Sure, yeah, it is. So what you said is exactly right. It's a philosophical guide to midlife, and in particular, the idea of midlife is a period of if not crisis, at least of a special difficulty or malaise or or particular distinctive challenges. And it covers a a range of challenges that one might face. So the pressure of work and what needs to be done, uh, reaching a kind of intensity that it hasn't had before then. The, The point at life in which one is coming to terms with options one's missing out on. So the sense that life is now constrained, that one doesn't have the freedom that if one was lucky one had earlier on. Uh, regret, realizing that there are things that have happened in your past that either you did or that other people did that you, you uh, that were regrettable and that mm-hmm. you, you now have to come to terms with. 
the sense of the sort of grind of project after project completed and, and sort of moving on from one thing to the next and the, the increasing proximity of death, not, not sort of imminently, but the sense that you can now sort of measure the distance to death. And it's that cluster of, of problems that the book addresses and tries to address by using the tools and resources of philosophy to change how we think and feel about them. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, it's particularly interesting, we'll get into it, but to me about which areas of the midlife crisis you focused on and how you focused on them. Um, so that that's like kind of, when we start talking about the book itself, that's really what I want to get into. But sure. to start off with, I mean, I, I always like to talk about the creative process because uh, that's always fascinating to me, just this, how writing happens. And this book in particular, it was really interesting to me because it was so personal. Um, and you really connected yourself, your crisis, your life to what you were writing and what you were, what solutions you were coming up with and, and tried to kind of also bridge that gap between the reader and the text by inserting yourself. So I guess just start off with kind of what was the process for writing such a personal book? It's interesting. I mean, the, the way it happened was, uh, as you suggested, derived from personal experience. So it, it was the experience of realizing that even though I'd been incredibly fortunate and had made it to this point of having a tenured job in academia, which is tough to do, and I'd been I'd been extremely fortunate in that, as I stepped back from this, this path of the career in which you're just jumping hurdle after hurdle and thought, okay, I, I sort of made it, I realized that instead of feeling completely content with things, I was suddenly flooded with all kinds of doubts and anxieties about the things I wasn't doing and the idea of doing what I was doing over and over again. And it was that sort of initial experience that made me think um, there was, well, I found it both emotionally puzzling and intellectually puzzling. I didn't, the, the thought, what, how can it be that I'm sort of getting what I wanted? And I don't think I was mistaken about that. And yet it isn't actually making me happy. Uh, seemed to me an intellectual problem and so what happened was that I thought well I'm a philosopher I'm supposed to work on ethics I'm supposed to think about the good life this seems like uh, a problem with living a good life maybe I can take this as a theme or a puzzle or a problem for philosophical reflection so I started doing that and um, I wrote uh, a few years ago I wrote a paper that's um, I don't know how to describe it. it's kind of a hybrid paper it came out in mm -hmm. an academic philosophy journal but it was it's called the midlife crisis but it was the first attempt to write more personally than i had done in any previous philosophical work and i felt again i was very lucky in that it's a, it's a sort of slightly eccentric paper and i was very lucky that there was a journal that was willing to take a take a a, a risk on it and, and say well yeah this is the, the, there are ways in which this is um this maybe isn't living up to some of the norms of standard academic philosophy, but it's also interesting. So that paper was the first thing I did. And then the idea of writing a book about it was sort of in my mind, but I didn't, I couldn't tell at that point whether it was going to be possible, both because I wasn't sure I had more to say or enough to say, and also because the kind of book I ended up writing is very different from the kind, even more different, in fact, than the essay from the kind of writing I'd done before. So basically, I was I was an academic. I wrote books and articles in that are sort of aimed at other academics, and this was a departure from that 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 I wasn't sure would work. Yeah. So 
So maybe compare and contrast then what it was like to write what you had done previously in academic work versus putting together something more, you know, more aligned with what the general public might want to read. That's a great question. I mean, it, it was very vivid to me when I started thinking about writing the book that the editorial voice in my head when I write philosophy, when I write when I write academic philosophy, wasn't just the stand wasn't just a sort of neutral editorial voice. There were particular prejudices that the philosophical editor has. Namely, the, the question is always, well, could you clarify that? Do you mean this or this? Um, also, you know, here are five objections. You need to deal with all of them. Also, the philosophical reader, you can sort of assume uh, a certain degree of perhaps grudging patience that they have to wade through all the, the details of your proposal mm -hmm. because you need to fill out all the details in order to make sure that the argument really stands up. And all of those things felt very different when I was thinking, how can I write something that will be fun to read? Uh, and the, the, I can't assume patience with uh, intricate details whose relevance isn't immediately obvious. And I can't assume, I, can't, I shouldn't be thinking, is this immune to every objection? I should be willing to be more, take more risks in writing in ways that ignore complications that just aren't relevant and aren't, wouldn't be interesting to someone who wasn't a professional philosopher trying to get every single little detail right. And so that I, I, I hadn't realized how much of a shift that would be. And it was really, uh, but it was really fun, actually. I mean, it made the, the experience of writing this book much more enjoyable than than the kind of writing I had done before. I really liked it. And uh, it certainly made the, the uh, experience I'm having afterwards of trying to go back or thinking that I should be going back to writing academically a bit of a... Um, well, it's a, it feels a bit of a grind to get back to, ah, to doing that. You've had a taste of the good life. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and it, 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 the, there's a sort of ongoing question of how to figure out how to balance the two kinds of writing and, and what, what I really want to, to do in the future. Yeah. What, what would you say was sort of the hardest part of that? What, what was the hardest part for you about writing the book? So the experience of actually writing it was mostly fun. Um, it took about, I would say between, I finished the first chapter, which is a sort of history, cultural history of the midlife crisis and that locates philosophy and philosophy's absence from it. Um, and showed it to an editor and he was interested. And the, between that point and actually finishing the thing was about a year, um, which f felt pretty fast to me. The hard part was the part before then, really, I think. So th there was about a three or four year period between becoming interested in the topic and deciding, I think I can write a book about this, I'm gonna try to do it, and, and sort of pitching it to an editor, during which uh, I was reading a lot and thinking a lot, but completely unclear whether the time and effort I was putting into it was going to lead anywhere. So in a way, that was the, the hardest part was, was the period of thinking, I'm not sure I can write about this. Um, and I'm not sure, I think I may spend three years reading everything anyone recommends about midlife and the midlife crisis, and then realize, nope, <laughs> I don't have an idea how to do this. And when I try to do it, it's not going to work. Um, mm. So the actual writing experience, once I felt like I was doing it, and it was turning out something like the way I had imagined when when I was hoping I could do this. Um, that part was the was sort of the the easier part, really. Yeah. So you, once you got over that internal doubt, 
Yes. Kind of, yeah. And know. the, the, um, yeah. And I think in a, in a way this, if I had to describe my writing process, I, I think in general, once I start writing, it's usually, it usually goes okay, but I usually wait because I put off starting until I really feel like I know what I'm doing. And there's this long period of sort of, sort of feeling like I'm, I'm, uh, uh, sort of anxious period of feeling like I'm almost there, but not quite. Should I start now? Nope. I should wait a little longer. And that, that part, um, that part is the, the nervous part. Yeah. Well, I think you are joined by many other people on the procrastination uh, train there. Yes. I, yeah. I, I found for me on so many projects, even, even getting this podcast off the ground, just starting is always the, the toughest part because sometimes perfection can be the enemy of the good. And you really want to feel like you've, you've got tackled everything and everything's ready to go. So no, exactly. Yeah. I feel you. Um, so yeah, I want, I want to get into just a bit about the, um, the level of personal personalization. You know, we, we just briefly talked about it, but uh, I mean, so obviously it was connected to your, your own issues that you were going through. Um, but within the book itself, the way you wrote it was such that it's very, very clear that there is a you, you know, yeah. in the sense that you use, you use the word I a lot throughout the book. Um, and sometimes you might talk for a bit about something else and then come back to, well, I thought about this and I felt like this and I was trying to do this. So you, you could have written a personal book about your midlife crisis and brought in other things without kind of inserting that, that language like that. But you obviously made a conscious choice to do so. And I was wondering why and, and why you thought that would make it more effective. Yeah, in a way, it was a conscious choice. On the other hand, it, it 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 felt like it wasn't that I had an idea for for a book about the topic and then thought, well, I'll make it personal. It really was that I was writing for myself to myself uh, about how to cope with what I was going through, and then turning it into something that might be addressed mm -hmm. to other people. So, in a way, the first personal character of it was was present through all of my notes and everything that I was doing before I tried to turn it into a book. I mean, another thing I did really consciously do in writing the book was to try and make it second personal also. So that uh, to, quite often I, it's addressed to you. So I address the reader as you quite often and I, I try to, to sort of generate a sense of a relationship between the two of us having a conversation about what we are going through. Uh, and that was, that was definitely, a, a, I thought, a, a way of forcing myself out of the more academic style of writing and constantly reminding myself that there was a particular person at the other end of this conversation and that it wasn't a, the sort of impersonal audience of philosophers but but someone um who might be struggling with the same kinds of things i was struggling with so so i was definitely focusing on on that when i was writing um yeah it, I mean, at one point in the book, I say it's sort of it's a self-help book in that it's an attempt to help myself, and and that's really true. I mean, yeah. it, it it is, it's addressed to me both as I was when I was at the the depths of the of the crisis, but also to me now, sort of as a reminder of, to myself of how I would like to be thinking differently about my life. Um, I mean, the other thing I read a lot of when I was working on it were, were just self-help books, uh, a kind of genre that philosophers tend 
not, I mean, maybe academics in general tend not to be incredibly respectful of. And to some extent, I, I, I also wanted to emulate the style of, uh, that I liked in self-help books, both, both you know, very mildly tongue-in-cheek, but also because clearly there's something that people, that these books matter to people and they make a difference to people. And the best of them are really wonderful. And so I, I thought um, I wanted to sort of share in that mode of address and that way of sort of relating to the reader. Yeah, and you know, we are, you already mentioned the the first chapter, which is kind of the result of your reading all these books, where you really are able to present a history of the notion of a midlife crisis and talk about you know some of the the self help approaches to it and the way uh, the, some of the more academic studies that have that have gone into it and i thought that was very interesting uh because you know you, you that, that chapter is not necessary as such if you're you know it's not like if you pick up a book about how to deal with the midlife crisis you would expect to read about the history of the midlife crisis so it, it to me it was very interesting that you included that as chapter one as opposed to an introduction or, or somewhere else in the book why did you feel that was so important to to give people that background it's interesting you should ask that. So in the course of writing the book, at various points, friends read it. And um, a friend of mine, Ian Blacker, who's a very wonderful writer, um, read, a, read a, the manuscript and said, you should take out the first chapter. Mm. Um, he said, basically, a version of what you're saying, but but meaner, which was, if people are coming to this book thinking, you know, I need help. I'm, I, I would like to to start grappling with and find new ways to to feel better about what I'm going through, telling them the cultural history of the idea of the midlife crisis is, is just beside the point. And um, I took that seriously, and I, I struggled with it for a while. And in the end, um, there are several things in that chapter that I really didn't want to lose. So one was, I feel like, skepticism about whether there is such a thing as a midlife crisis. Like, is mm -hmm. this just bullshit? Is this a, a serious topic? I thought somewhere, I, some point, I have to address that, and I toyed with the idea of doing it somewhere else or in some other way, and it felt very hard to move it. Um, I also wanted to talk about the absence of philosophy and the idea, sort of, the sort of preempt skepticism about whether philosophy had anything to contribute. And so again, I thought, well, if there was somewhere else I could do that, maybe I could move this material around. But I couldn't figure out a way to do it. So in, in a way that the there is a certain sort of um, it's a it's a residue of the difficulty of 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 there were lots of revisions I did make in the course of of working on the manuscript, and this was a case where it, it felt too difficult to move things around. And so it's being where it is is a legacy of the diff, of my my failure to figure out how to do it anywhere else. Um, but that the substantively the issues I, I thought I really needed to say something about were. Um, whether this is a real phenomenon to begin with, uh, you know, why think, I mean, the book is called Midlife and it's, it's not just about midlife crises, but the, the basic lens is midlife is a period of particular difficulty. And so I, I wanted to justify the idea that it was appropriate to engage the topic on that assumption. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's part of why it's there, but uh, it's interesting that you should ask that question because it, yeah. it, it was asked in the course of the writing that's, of the book. That's funny. Well, yeah, and you also bring up the the idea that uh, contemporary philosophy hasn't kind of done this 
before what you're attempting to do here that hasn't really paid much attention to the midlife crisis. Uh, so I was just curious if you had any thoughts about why that was. I mean, if it, it, within either the academic circles or kind of more general public um, reading material. Yeah, I mean, this it, this may be changing, but I, I think there is has been a strong tendency for philosophers to gravitate to topics that do not feel socially or culturally specific, but instead feel relatively universal. So mm. I think maybe one thing that, that deters philosophers from saying my topic is the midlife crisis is the anxiety that this is, this is not a generally, uh, it's not a prevalent phenomenon. It's not something that, uh, is part of the human condition at all. It's, it's a sort of local and particular problem. And I think that's true even of, even of things that are clearly part of the human condition, namely just the, the sort of features of human life that are specific to human beings that wouldn't apply to just any rational consciousness, namely aging and embodiedness, are features that, while there's some philosophical engagement with them, are relatively neglected. Um, I mean, one thing to say, I think in the book, maybe the way I put it is, is a bit unfair to philosophers in that on the one hand, my sense was that philosophers had not addressed aging or middle age or midlife as such very much. On the other hand, one of the things I wanted to try to show was that there is a lot of, there are a lot of philosophical ideas and not just sort of ancient philosophical ideas, but sort of contemporary arguments, um, that the kinds of things you would learn about if you went to graduate school in philosophy that are actually relevant to this. So although they haven't mm -hmm. made these connections, philosophy has the potential to address the, the topic. So it was, it was sort of, it felt to me like a, um, an opportunity. Right. So it was almost like a natural evolution that you saw could have happened and you decided to be the one to, to make yeah, that connection. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that so, so several of the arguments I talk about, for instance, there's some, you know, questions about our relationship with time that have been dramatically raised in thought experiments by this philosopher Derek Parfit. And some of these cases clearly could be relevant to what lots and lots of people are going through. And yeah, in, in many of those connections were sort of waiting to be made. Yeah. So you, you kind of mentioned that the idea of the modern midlife crisis was born in kind of the mid sixties and you talk a lot about the research and, and what happened from then on. Uh, what was going on before that? I mean, you know, you, you touch on, throughout the book, you touch on some, some you know, th ancient thought from thousands of years ago, but whether even hundreds of years ago to thousands of years ago, wh what was different before this kind of phrase midlife crisis came about? So my, the, so my sense of the cultural history of just the idea of middle age in general is that the idea that, that middle age was a distinctive phase of life became really culturally popular sort of towards the end of the 19th century. Um, I mean, there are, there are sort of earlier formulations of this. And if you, you know, you go back to Aristotle, he talks about the prime of life being, you know, 35 for the body and 49 for the mind. So, but the, the kind of conceptualization of middle age as a distinctive phase, not just adulthood, uh, seems to, to date from a, about the end of the 19th century, not initially conceived as a sort of problematic time or a, a time of, of crisis or difficulty. And then I think that the, what happens in the early 20th century is sort of increasing mechanization of work, increasing focus on um, uh, work efficiency, creates the, the anxiety that by the time you're 40, you may be 
um, past it. You may be over the hill, and then there's the great in the U.S. anyway. Then there's the you know there's, there's the uh, depression and um, the kind of specter of unemployment and unemployability in your 40s again gets this sort of sort of amplification um and so there, i think that's the point at which the idea that midlife is a is a period of of um difficulty and crisis starts to 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 find its roots and then as you said in 1965 there's this article by a, a psychoanalyst Elliot jacques called death in the midlife crisis in which the phrase itself gets coined but i i think it's that sort of early 20th century um process of, of, of sort of increased focus on work efficiency and and risk of unemployment that that is part of the story at least mm. so i was actually very surprised i didn't know this about john stuart mill but i want to talk about him because i, I thought that was that was interesting so you know, you, you, we're talking about middle age here and we think 30s 40s 50s um, but you talk about john stuart mill and his breakdown in you know when he was 20 uh, he already had an incredibly kind of stressful, intense life of, you know, his father just, you know, having him learn Latin at five or whatever it was. I mean, he was really just sheltered and was doing structured learning. And I guess maybe just recount some of that story and, and talk about what you were able to take away from that in the book. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so Mill was a real inspiration to me. He was a 19th century philosopher. His father was also a kind of activist philosopher who decided to conduct a kind of experiment with his son, uh, the experiment of sort of educating someone for the greater good of humanity so that his life would be sort of instrumental to the greater good of humanity. So as you said, he learned you know, Greek at age three and Latin at eight and then economy and philosophy in his teens. And then at 20, he had a nervous breakdown. And uh, Mill was interesting to me both it's a bit of a cheat, as you point out, uh, and as I admit in the book, to treat him as a case of midlife crisis, although he was doing everything at such an accelerated pace. Uh, he, he got to the uh, crisis faster than most of us. But the, the thing that initially got me very interested in Mill was that he wrote an autobiography in which he attempts to diagnose his own crisis, his nervous breakdown. And it's a rare case of a philosopher in, in the Western, sort of recent Western tradition taking a crisis they're experiencing and saying, well, okay, I'm, my life isn't going well. I work on the question, one of my topics is what makes a good life? I should be able to figure this out. And so it was sort of a precedent for what I was doing. And I was very excited to, to find this model. Um, but I do think what, what Mill went through has some kind of resonance for, for at least part of the the conventional midlife crisis or one kind of crisis people have. So basically what, what Mill was devoting his life to was this sort of social reform. And at a certain point, he asked himself, well, suppose we, we reform things so there's no more suffering. Now what? What's the point of that? And even though he thinks, well, that will be the achievement of my life's ambition, there seems something empty about it. And one of the ideas he has about what might be missing is that his conception of what's valuable in life is in my terms, purely ameliorative. So he's focused on ways of making a difference in the world that just solve problems or remove needs that we'd be better off without. So it's it's sort of getting taking the negative things and getting rid of them. And the idea of activities or things to do in life that are positively valuable 
So he, he, he himself talks about the question, you know, what would there be left to do when the greatest sufferings of mankind have been relieved? He didn't really have a picture of the answer to that. And so the, the thing that was lacking in his conception of a good life was what I call existential values, so the values that make life positively worth living in the first place. So that there is something to aim for beyond just getting rid of the negative stuff so that it's you know no worse than not having been born at all. Yeah. Um, and for, for Mill, that was reading Wordsworth's poetry. That was the, the, the thing that enabled light to dawn over his gloom. Um, but I think for many of us, that the experience, maybe not of complete, the complete disappearance of or occlusion of existential value, but the sense that so much of our life is devoted to dealing with the stuff that has to get dealt with, that can be especially intense in middle age, and especially when you know many people are in the situation where work is very demanding. There's a lot of stuff you've got to do just to take care of the kids. You have aging parents and the stuff you have to do to to make sure things are going okay on that front. You're sandwiched in between. And there isn't as much room in your life as there in a way needs to be for the things that you don't need to do, but nevertheless make life worth living in the first place. And so even, even if your crisis is not ex as extreme as Mills, I think making that distinction and thinking about the ways in which it's not self-indulgent, but sort of essentially life-affirming and necessarily life-affirming to focus on existential value is something we can we can learn from from mill's case yeah and and uh fascinating case that was it's i it definitely made me realize i need to read more about him and yeah he, more I mean, about him the, the, the so the autobiography in general i, I love the whole book it is yeah. true that lots of it is is recounting the particular events of his life and his uh, social activism in, in a, at a level of detail that probably wouldn't be that exciting. But one thing I th you could just, mm. you could just read the chapter called uh, about my, my nervous breakdown. That chapter is amazing. And it, it, you, even if probably I have now told uh, anyone listening enough uh, that they could just grab that chapter. You can go online. It's all public access and, and just, read it and that chapter is just a very beautiful piece of writing um, mm. and a very beautiful piece of kind of sincere unpretentious introspection by a philosopher and I do think that it was a real inspiration for me well great recommendation and so let's let's then uh, bridge that over to you now because we in the third chapter we start to learn more about you and and your specific story so I thought I'd ask a little bit about your story and kind of what your life was like while you were growing up and what led you to become a philosopher. Sure, yeah. So I grew up in Hull in northeast England in Yorkshire, in the, in the non-picturesque part of Yorkshire. <laughs> so it's sort of a yeah. rundown in, uh, in post-industrial town in Yorkshire, uh, not uh, Bronte country and beautiful uh, um, uh, uh, hills. And... Um, I got interested in philosophy through reading an early 20th century sci-fi horror author, H.B. Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. uh, so sure. he, he writes um, weird fiction in which basically the trope in which supernatural events turn out to be alien science or to reveal the limits of human knowledge. Uh, that trope, which is now pretty commonplace, it's like the basis of the X-Files. He was sort of the pioneer of that idea. Anyway, he read a lot of philosophy and 
his fiction explores philosophical themes about the indifference of the cosmos and um, the questions about whether morality is objective or relative and questions about the limits of science. And so I started reading the philosophers he had read and then realized that I was more interested in the philosophy than uh -huh. in, than in yeah. uh, the fiction. And that's the point at which I, I, I really got excited about doing philosophy. So on the way, I had been, before Lovecraft, as I say in the book, I'd sort of thought maybe I should be a poet. Um, for a while, I toyed with that idea. And then there was a long stretch during which at least my go-to answer when grown-ups asked me what I wanted to do was, I'm going to be a doctor. Um, because my father was a doctor and he wanted me to be a doctor. And it seemed like a very, like, it was, well, it seemed like a worthwhile thing. And it also seemed like a an answer to the question that grown-ups seemed perfectly happy with. Yeah. So, so I certainly conceived myself as having that plan for a number of years. And then at a certain point realized I, that wasn't what I was going to do in college uh, if, if my parents would let me do philosophy instead. Yeah. Yeah, I think I remember in the book you were mentioning that was your father a dentist? No, he's a, he's a doctor, he but a doctor. he, he, um, uh, yeah, he, he, he was very interested in, he wanted me to be a dermatologist. Oh, a dermatologist. He'd come up with right. the theory, which I think may well be true that dermatologists make lots of money and very few of their patients die. So he was very, he thought he'd figured out <laughs> yeah. the perfect career for me. And as I said, for, for a while, I, I went along with this and thought, sure, why not? Just look um, at people's skin. Yeah, yeah. All right. It doesn't seem too bad. Although I, I think if I'd actually been a doctor, something that I do periodically think I maybe should have taken more seriously, probably I wouldn't have wanted to be a dermatologist. I wanted to be an emergency room doctor or something more more dramatic. But yeah. um, at any rate, yeah, that was that was the, one of the sources of the idea that that would be a, a good thing to do. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm... I'm uh, I'm very glad that despite my my disappointing him on that front he seemed he seemed okay with it. I, he, yeah. he he was I was he was I was the last hope because my older brother had done physics and was going to go off and do uh -huh. other things. And so um I was the last chance for him to have a there were just the two of us have a son who was going to be a doctor, but um it's interesting he, how that works with parents, you know. I, I'd be interested to know about if you look across most disciplines whether the parents were similar or different, you know, and and, and I feel like it's pro there's probably not too many shades of gray. It's probably either the kids totally rebelled and went completely off, or they decided to stick with the family business or or whatever. It's else. interesting. It's a good question. I, I mean, I have a son who's who's um, uh, eleven, who, as far as I can tell, has no interest whatsoever in being a philosopher, um, which seems fine to me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, but but it's true that it's not it's it, that it isn't a shade of it's not that it's sort of oh maybe that seems good. It's he he, he is. Uh, He's pretty clear that that isn't a, a good plan for <laughs> yeah. him. I don't, do you have kids or no? No, no. So I do not. I do not know. Um, yeah, I mean, that, I, I, I think I, um, in general, feel like academia has its has its good sides and bad sides. But the main reason why I can imagine myself wanting a kid to do it is just familiarity. That I, I don't really know how people do other jobs or what the other jobs are. Right. So you can always does, help. That out. does not. Yeah. Exactly. I could yeah. be helpful, but that doesn't seem like a good reason to try to direct his life choices. So yeah. Yeah. Well, very understanding of you. Uh, so yeah. So speaking of choices, that's kind of what uh, chapter three really gets into is this idea of options and choices, as as you mentioned before, and you, you kind of make this argument that it's great to have options, but bad to follow them or choose them essentially a lot of the time in that it's it's dangerous to kind of radically change our life 
just because the option is there and it sounds nice. But at the same time, we should embrace the idea of options, just kind of in and of themselves. It's it's nice to think about. So I thought that was that was kind of an interesting argument because it it sort of feels like. To me, it was, it's like it's great to bake cookies and put them in front of you. You just can't eat yeah. any of them <laughs> ever. So, you know, wh- why is that exactly? I mean, maybe I'm being completely unfair, but but why is that? And and then maybe tie in some some options you felt like you had and and didn't end up choosing. Yeah. So I there's maybe two sides to this. So one is the thought that um, the experience of missing out, the sense that there are these other alternatives, and I even if things go well, the sense that one regrets not having taken them. I think that idea um, reflects something actually positive about life, namely that it's possible to appreciate, and in fact that most of us do have the capacity to appreciate such a diversity of valuable things. So for me, this would be, so I look back and think, I'm never gonna be a poet. That would have been a completely different life. I love poetry that's not going to happen. Or I, I could have been a doctor. I re- I probably could have gone into med school. I probably could have, could have made a living. It, w- it would have worked out probably. Um, and that would have been very, very different. And there's all kinds of things that life would have contained that my life doesn't have in it. And I can conjure in myself a feeling of regret. And I think lots of people can, in thinking about lives they're not living, even if they feel that their own life is basically okay, can do that. But I don't think that's fundamentally a negative phenomenon. And I don't think it necessarily means that you've made a mistake. It doesn't necessarily mean that the other lives would have been better. What it reflects is that because values are so diverse and because we're able to, because we're forced to choose between them in ways that don't directly compensate for the things we miss out on, it's basically inevitable that we're going to experience that kind of loss. And really, it's not bad. It's not a bad thing about life because when you try to imagine what it would ha- what you'd have to be like not to experience that kind of loss, the only way to do it would be either to impoverish the world so there really weren't lots of different lives worth living or to impoverish yourself so that you're sort of so single-minded that there's really only one of them you care about. And those aren't really desirable ways to live. So part, part of, I think, what's going on when we relate in a a sort of confused way to the value of other options is to take regret or the sense of of sort of missing out as inevitably a sign that something went wrong. In fact, it's inevitable even when things go right. It's it's a sign of something, of a healthy appreciation of the diversity of good things in life. Um, I think there are other ways in which we tend to, we can, we risk sort of overvaluing options too. So I think there, there's a, a sort of a, potentially irrational tendency to value the mere having of options in itself more than or out of proportion to the value of what the actual options are. Mm. And I think that's a tendency that can lead people to make choices simply for the sake of having options that aren't necessarily good choices. Having said that, I, I don't want to deny that there are cases where in midlife, the right thing to do really is to make a radical change, you know, to, to, end a relationship or change careers in some dramatic way. Um, I mean, it's a general feature of the book that because it's introspective and focused on what philosophy can contribute to how to think about your life, it's much more about how while continuing to do outwardly 
fairly similar things, one can change how one feels and, and sort of avoid various kind of pathologies of, of feeling and, and valuing. And it's less about practical advice about how to switch careers and things like that. And, and that's partly because it's philosophical and, and it's about uh, the kind of introspection philosophy can support. It's also because I think there are, if you go around looking for self-help books about midlife, there already are self-help books about midlife that say, um, you know, here are some strategies for being newly on the dating scene after a midlife divorce. And I wasn't going to replicate that. Yeah, it's, it's sort of more like metacognitive, like how to think about thinking as yes. opposed to how to think about acting. Yes, yeah. So I mean, it, it, in in some cases, there are suggestions for things to do in the book, but very often there are things to do in order to change how you feel or think. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One thing I thought was interesting. You were talking about risk and and valuing options. I mean, you, you kind of brought in briefly the the kind of behavioral economics field and the idea of risk aversion and you know how we value options over time and how that can change. And to me, that kind of spoke to the way that our personalities change as we age. So, you know, maybe if we had faced the same issues at, you know, 30 that we're facing at 50, we might, even if they're the exact same set of issues, if somehow we were at the same point in our lives, we might respond differently because of who we are. So I guess I was curious to know a bit more about that and, and why, why we might not choose options now that we might have chosen before and generally how our personalities change as we age. That's really interesting. I mean, I, one thing I was thinking in talking about risk aversion in the book was about, I, I was interested in the question, how can it be or can it be that something, for instance, the, a decision you shouldn't have made at a certain point, you later look back on and think, yeah, I'm kind of glad I made it. Um, even though you don't retract your earlier sense that at the time it wasn't a wise decision. And one way that can happen has to do with risk aversion, to, to do with the fact that at the time, you sort of the gamble between two options, say a riskier but potentially more exciting career as a musician and a less risky career as a lawyer, that's the, the case I sort of study in the book. Um, at the time, you might think it was I was just unduly afraid of the risks when I chose the more conservative option. But when things work out well and you look back, now what you're looking at is sort of a risk-free past. Like you know what the past is. It turned out the way it did. And if it's pretty good, even if it's not the best it could have been, the question, do I wish I could sort of rewind time and do it over again, will look different. Because now what, what the keeping things as they are is risk-free. The idea of rewinding time reinserts risk. And insofar as you're risk-averse, that's now going to seem like a less tempting option. I mean, that could happen though. The case I was imagining was one where that happens, even when your sort of level of risk aversion stays the same. You don't sort of, your personality doesn't need to change for that to happen. You could be equally risk averse at, at both times. It's just that what you're looking back on is sort of a risk-free life versus mm. a risky do-over versus um, what you were looking, the, the choices you were making in the beginning all involved risk. So. It wasn't that one of them was risk-free, but um, I think it may well be true that people's people's personalities and and sort of attitudes change in life, and that one one kind of way um, that I actually don't say that much about in the book, in which 
life can take turns that at the time you should have regretted and that in retrospect you might feel better about is that the decisions themselves change what kind of preferences and values and character you have so that you end up with a character shaped by those choices in which you now can look back and affirm the way things those were out. correct yes yeah, yeah. so i think that is a, that is a uh, an, another interesting way in which it's not inevitable that things that were mistakes and misfortunes at a time are bound to be objects of regret later so what the general question of, the, of that chapter of the book is um is, is about whether it can make rational sense not to regret things that were mistakes misfortunes failures and, and these are both ways in which it could make sense to to affirm your life even in the face of imperfection right so sort of like the law job that you have maybe it wasn't quite what you would have might have wanted to pick at that particular time when you ended up picking that path. But now that you have it, you've got a stable career and thus you can have a family and a home and you don't have to worry about, you know, maybe you're not stressed and then you can go about kind of convincing yourself that that was in fact the right choice. Right. And maybe you come to like it more. So one one way this could happen is just if, if, if you're lucky, then your initial desires, uh, the desires that made you consider these different options in your life are themselves changed as you pick one option. And if you're lucky, the change is that you come to like it more rather than less. And then, and then mm. in retrospect, you think, hey, this is, this is better than I thought it was going to be. I now, I now see more value in this than I did before. Um, and I think that it's, it's, I don't think it would be irrational if that didn't happen. I think this, but it, it, I don't think it's necessarily a mistake when it does. And I think there's a lot of psychological mechanisms that sort of lead people to um, value the actual way things turn out more than the way uh, they might have turned out. Yeah, I, I always like to say that we're rationalization machines. Yes. We're very good at, at that. Yeah, I mean, in a way, thinking about this philosophically, I, I was interested in in whether certain kinds of retrospective affirmation of life are rationally defensible uh, and i wanted to focus on ones that were there are probably some that aren't but it may not matter from the point of view of of in a way from the point of view of of uh therapizing oneself irrational or non-rationally motivated affirmation of the past might be might be better than nothing yeah yeah so you have this kind of fascinating comparison between abstraction and specificity, and and maybe, yeah, to tie it back to our last you know couple of questions, you, you were talking about the abstract notions of other lives we could have lived. So maybe the abstract notion of what it would have been like to be a musician, and the specific details of a life we do have. You know what it's like. What, what is my job every day as an attorney? And you kind of, it seems to me, call out abstraction as dangerous almost. And so I'm curious to hear about why thinking about things abstractly can be dangerous and how focusing on the details can can help you through that. Sure, yeah. I mean, so this is a, a, a psychological phenomenon that I think is rational and, and neglected by philosophers, which is that when we... Our, our emotional responses to things and our preferences and our desires are not just sensitive to the sort of colorless judgment, which is better of these options, which is worse. You know, would my life have been better 
if could it have been better if I'd married someone else? Maybe it could. Uh, and if I just think, is that better? You, it might seem like I'm sort of rationally compelled to prefer and to wish one of the better outcomes had come about. But in fact, the contrast between the sort of abstract thought, this alternative would have been better, and the thought, well, the way things are isn't as good, but look at all the specific ways in which it's good. Look at the, the particular interactions and the moments I've shared with my, uh, my wife and my kid. And if I think about those specifics, there seems to be a kind of a way in which my desires and emotions rationally come apart from my abstract evaluation of which options are better or worse. So, I mean, I think this isn't, this is just a, a general phenomenon that when you know not just that something's good, but you know why it's good and you have a rich appreciation of what's good about it, you're more moved and I think rationally more moved than you would be if you just, if someone just told you, yeah, it's really good and didn't mm -hmm. tell you why. And so one thing that we have as a rational resource for affirming our lives, even when we acknowledge that things went badly, um, there were misfortunes, it could have gone better, is that we don't have access to the particular ways in which those alternatives would have been better. Whereas we do have access to the particular ways in which things actually go are good. And unless it's really bad, there are gonna be some ways in which it's good. And that by focusing on them, we can find resources with which to affirm our lives that wouldn't be present if we just asked in general terms, well, could it have been better? Would it have been better some other way? And that's mm. a, you know, as I said, I think that's a phenomenon that philosophers tend to either ignore or to assume must be irrational. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm not convinced that it's irrational. I think in fact that it, it is reasonable to be more strongly responsive to the specifics than to these sort of abstract judgments. And it, it you know, the fact that philosophers tend to focus on the questions of which abstract comparisons of better and worse are true means that they're, they're missing out something that's really important for the actual rational psychology of valuing and, and caring about things that, um, that, we, actually, that we, we engage in. A big part of the midlife crisis is aging and, and death and kind of realizing that maybe perhaps our, our best years are behind us. Um, so yeah, I had a couple questions about that. And first off the, the symmetry argument, and I wanted to, to kind of get from you the symmetry argument and, and then kind of at a, at a higher level, how can philosophy really help us deal with the fact that death is kind of on its way for all, for everyone? Yeah. So the, I mean, the, to anticipate the, uh, the honest answer is I'm not sure it can. And it's a one mm -hmm. way in which my book is is an unconventional self-help book, is that this is one of the points at which I say, here are some self-help strategies that might work for you. I have to be honest and say they don't really work for me. So one of the, one of the strategies that doesn't really work for me, but it has been philosophically and historically very influential, is the symmetry idea where um, Lucretius, who's a Roman philosopher, says um, the way to come to terms with death, to stop fearing the void of post-mortem non-existence, is to recognize that it's in itself just identical to the void of uh, prenatal non-existence and think about how unconcerned you are 
about this endless void before you were born. It doesn't conjure up the feelings of anxiety or fear. It doesn't seem like a kind of terrible cosmic insult the way death can seem. And the challenge anyway he's raising is why, how can it be rational to take different attitudes to those two? So he, he's arguing that the rational attitude would be one that says, um, I should feel about post-mortem non-existence the, the, with the way I feel about prenatal non-existence, which is basically indifferent, unconcerned. Um, and of course, you could restore the symmetry the other way by becoming in intensely right. anxious and freaked out by prenatal non-existence. That's, that's sort of another option on the table. But um, I mean, the fundamental issue raised by the argument is sort of whether the sheer past-future asymmetry, whether, whether it's rational to give weight to that, whether the, the fact that sort of death, what death deprives you of um, is future experiences, whereas what not having existed for a long, long time earlier deprives you of, uh, in, 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 you know, in quotes, is um, experiences that would already be in the past anyway. And so one sort of loophole, one kind of problem for the symmetry argument, one kind of answer to the Lucretius is to insist that it's perfectly rational to treat, to take different attitudes to future and past experiences and to value and care about future experiences more than past ones. And while I don't think that's rationally sort of compulsory, I wouldn't think someone who really had a kind of temporally neutral attitude who didn't prioritize future over past in that way was exactly making a mistake. I also don't think people who are are making a mistake. And so I, and since I am like that, I think uh, the suggestion that I should have symmetrical attitudes to post-mortem non-existence and prenatal non-existence is ultimately not compelling. It doesn't, it doesn't seem mm. rationally compulsory. So that, on the other hand, it, for some people, think making drawing that comparison can be therapeutic. It appears in lots of um, self-help books about coming to terms with death or dealing with fatal illnesses. And so uh, it clearly can work for some people. So I, I'm... Uh, I wanted to talk about it in the book, but at the same time admitting that um, it doesn't really work for me. Yeah, so, and I'm going to talk about another one here, and I had some questions about it, but if it doesn't work for you as well, then it makes sense that you're, you're probably on on, on uh, my side about the, the holes I attempt to poke. But here, let me, let me just uh, ask away. So you also talk about this idea that if we could kind of well, for, you bring up immortality. Yes, yeah. And so you talk about the idea that actually immortality is not desirable. Immortality would be bad. You know, obviously a lot of times we might think, you know, there's this fantasy, we see sci-fi movies, whatever, immortality is amazing, we live forever, or maybe we're uploaded into a computer or whatever. But it turns out that, you know, this particular argument says actually, in, you know, immortality is bad. So if immortality is bad, then we must want to die. Dying should be something that we... At least at some to. point. At right. Least, at least not live forever. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, which is, you know, fair if you make that point. So I guess, to me, that raised all sorts of interesting questions about kind of modernity and, and modern medicine and what the goals of it are and what they should be. And, you know, if we're going to try and agree with that, that we don't want to live forever... Well, then what is then we get into what is the appropriate amount of time to live, which I assume would be probably different for everyone. 
Um, but you know, it's tough because you have to make some of these calls as a society, you know, about, about that sort of thing. I mean, there are different, you know, uh, uh, benefits programs that kick in at different ages or obviously assuming people like for, for instance, stop working at a certain age. Yeah. So, you know, this gets into like, if we double our lifespans because of medicine in the next hundred years, will as a society, we have to agree on new age limits for these various programs and thus kind of not even allow people to decide for themselves what the appropriate ages to do things might be. So I guess I just wanted to to kind of push back on that a little bit, but hearing you say that none of these worked for you probably yeah. means you've already pushed back well, in your own head. So there's an argument that immortality is sort of undesirable in the sense that um, living forever, a life in which you live forever would be on the whole uh, um, involve sort of so much tedium that it would be worse than having having eventually died or it would be so alien that it wouldn't really satisfy the kind of desires we have for continued existence. There's also an argument that um, in most respects when you think about what's good for you, there are, you would classify sort of superpowers like it would be good if I could fly as kind of nice things to wish for but not um, not things whose absence you should grieve. And from a certain perspective, immortality looks like that. The thought, well, you know, I wish I didn't have to die. Sure, that would be great. But it would be like being Superman or something. Um, I think from both of those arguments that address the question sort of as if it was purely a question about human well-being or, you know, what would be best from the point of view of human well-being. And I, my sense is that people's aversion to death, their own and that of people they love, is only partly about well-being, the thought that by dying, when, uh, say, dying prematurely, li your life is l less good for you than it would have been if you'd lived longer. There's also just a more primitive sort of attachment to people's existence um, that makes it painful for their li to, to watch their lives end, even when it might be better for them. And so that's the kind of thing that I think isn't really addressed by these arguments, the sense of b basic attachment to the 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 value of human life that makes us want to conserve in existence the people we love, including ourselves. I mean, the, the issue about sort of what the optimal, I, the issue about what the optimal lifespan would be or these sort of larger social issues, I think are, are really hard to address, partly because it's very hard to imagine a near future in which the kinds of life uh, extension that you're, you're talking about don't have sort of politically problematic consequences. So in other words, that, that exacerbate inequality so that it, it ends up being not just that the 1% uh, control 50% of the wealth, but they also live three times as long. Um, because the, the, the future in which, a future in which these health benefits or life extensions are available more generally is much harder much more remote, much more harder to imagine. Mm. So that, that the first thing that strikes me about it is, even apart from the question, how do we think about what the optimal life would be for a human being, a question that, that's it's very hard to address because it involves fundamental changes in the features of human nature that we sort of rely on as a basis in trying to evaluate what's a good human life, is, is the sort of further political problem. I mean, the other thing that, that again, it's sort of beyond what I talk about in the book, but uh, it goes back to the question of sort of 
embodiment and the way in which philosophers think about human beings or human, uh, sorry, I shouldn't say human beings, the way they think about people like us is that they will often, it, it is a fairly common view in the philosophy of personal identity that we maybe could upload ourselves into computers and that we could survive that. And uh, I just don't think that's true. So, the, mm. the, I mean, the argument, we, we, basically, I think what we are is a certain kind of animal. We're, you know, human beings, we're human animals. And um, you could copy uh, my sort of mental records into a computer file, but that wouldn't be my survival. And so I think a lot of the really extreme, sort of the, the more out there discussion of... Um, uh, life extension where it, where it becomes sort of immortality via uploading are based on sort of flawed pictures of what we are mm. that divorce us from our basically biological nature and it's it's it is loosely related to the kind of way of picturing us as sort of purely rational beings and and not thinking about embodiment that in some sort of deeper broader background way is behind the sort of neglect of, say, aging as a philosophical topic. And they have, they have some deep level connected roots. Yeah. So I want to talk about a couple things here as we, as we head towards the end. Um, you mentioned this idea of telic and atelic. I think I'm pronouncing those yes. yeah. correctly. So uh, I thought that was, that, those, that was real interesting. I don't, so uh, I'll let you again um, summarize a bit because I want to be sure that and get those right. Sure. Yeah. For, for me, this was the biggest um, step forward. This is the thing that, that I think I had many midlife crises covering many of the things we've talked about. But at the root was a kind of project driven type A obsession with um, the next achievement and getting the next thing done, which I think I'd had temperamentally, but was definitely exacerbated by the, the academic career structure. And so... Um, what helped me was to draw a distinction between two kinds of activities. The telic activities are the ones that are sort of goal-directed, aimed at a kind of achievable end, like getting a promotion at work or having kids or, um, or something as mundane as walking home. But it has a kind of terminal point at which it's over. And I think those kinds of activities, while often valuable, many of them really do matter, have sort of structural problems. So one is that the, the goal is always in the future until it's in the past. The present is always sort of... Uh, empty in a way and they also have the problem that your engagement with them uh, exterminates them it kills them it's sort of in in in, uh, in pursuing them what you're aiming to do in a way is to complete them and thereby expunge them from your life so you're taking these things that that are meaningful activities and trying to get rid of them and crucially not all activities are like that so there are also atelic activities which we're also always engaged in but we, we don't always focus on in the same way and these are activities that don't have a terminal point so it could just be instead of having kids it could be the sort of ongoing activity of parenting or instead of um, getting a promotion at work it could be um, thinking about um, whatever you know problems you think about at work helping people at work uh, and instead of um, you know walking home that mundane example there's also just going for a walk strolling around where there's no terminal point at which you're aiming that's going to exhaust the activity you'll stop doing it but you can't sort of finish it so there's no more walking to do or parenting to do and because they don't have those that kind of terminal goal directed structure they also don't have the problem that 
um, of the sort of hollowness of the present, the sense that what you really want is always in the future or the past and that you're exhausting, uh, exhausting the activity by engaging with it. If what you want is to be, say, just hanging out and chatting with your friends and that's what you're doing, um, well, you have exactly what you want right now. It's not sort of in the future, uh, sort of aimed for and, and, and uh, um, delayed or deferred. And so I, I think a kind of crisis that I was having and that, that people can fall into, especially around midlife, although it could happen earlier or, or later, is overvaluing telic activities or projects or exclusively valuing projects, thinking of the valuable activities in their life excessively in those terms and not valuing sufficiently the sort of atelic ongoing process of what they're doing. And the shift to valuing atelic activities more has been for me both the hardest and the most sort of fruitful and, and um, effective therapy for, for the midlife crisis. Do you have, uh, we, are you willing to share maybe a particular example well, of, so, of an activity? So uh, I can do it by, by um, I can anticipate a question you, that I, I know you were probably going to ask, which was about what am I working on? So, you know, what, what am I working on next? Yeah. So, so one, one kind of, I think in the past, I would always have had many answers to that that took the form of projects, things I was going to write, things I was going to try and work on. And one thing I've been trying to do is just say, is to let myself not have projects or goals in doing philosophy and to go back to a kind of way of relating to philosophy on which what I value is the incredible privilege of being able to think about philosophical ideas and read philosophy and talk about philosophy with people and to invest in those atelic activities uh, and let the, the, the sort of products, the sort of um, you know, teaching this class and writing this essay, uh, if I'm going to write an essay, be sort of side effects of that. Mm. Um, so that's, that for me, that, that's been a big shift. Because the, the, although there are the sort of aspects of my personal like, life I could talk about too, for me, the thing that was most alarming in, in, in initiating the midlife crisis was this sense that I, was, I wanted to be a philosopher and now I was. And yet, uh, I suddenly, the moment of, of getting there had this structure of, well, I've completed it, that's done, now what? Mm -hmm. uh, and the only answer I had was, well, I guess I'll just do some more of those things. And it seemed completely unsatisfying. And so uh, for me, that, that kind of shift to, is, that's the thing I'm, I'm trying to do, to be less focused on getting things done. Mm. Which is a, an absolutely fascinating attempt kind of given that i feel like almost everything in our society is the opposite yes there's yeah, literally yeah. a book called getting things done that sold millions of copies whose yeah. sole goal <laughs> is to help you achieve as much as possible with your projects yes you know? i mean I, I think again i touch on this a little bit in the book but i, I suspect that the the sort of cultural the, the 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 crystallization of the idea of the midlife crisis and the idea that it's connected with sort of being project driven is not unrelated to um sort of these sort of cultural pressures towards uh, successive achievement and maximizing the number of valuable things one does. I mean, that, that sort of ethos of what makes for a valuable life or on which it's a productive life um, is, is a kind of deeper social cause of the kind of, uh, 
this particular kind of midlife crisis. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the last question I wanted to ask about the book was um, about Western versus Eastern philosophy. And you get in, in the kind of the very last chapter, you bring in Buddhism and you talk a bit about Eastern philosophy and meditation and, and how that can be helpful. Um, and I think that was, uh, to me, it was very interesting because almost everything else in the book was Western philosophy, kind of modern. You, you kind of also, you, you tease back a bit into some of the Greeks or, or other areas. But I guess I was curious about why, how you found that balance and why, why Buddhism was helpful in the area it was and why it wasn't in the other parts of the book. So the, the background to this is that my education in philosophy is sort of an education in Western philosophy. So mo mm -hmm. most philosophy departments in the Anglophone world uh, don't have people who work on, on non-Western philosophy. So I wasn't really trained in that. And... Um, so that's kind of a contingent feature of my education. The other, mm -hmm. another thing is that I very much was interested in the idea of, of not treating a philosophical help book, self-help book as, um, uh, an attempt to discover the great wisdom of the ancients, e either in the Western tradition or the non-Western mm -hmm. traditions. Um, but as the application of sort of the tools of, of philosophical reflection to the kind of problems people were actually facing, the kind of problems that I would actually talk about with my friends um, over dinner when they would say, you know, I have to spend all my time just doing stuff I have to get done. I never have any time for me. Like to think, okay, what's going on there? So I, it, it was much more about, about doing philosophy than about looking back to authorities. Um, but when I ended up thinking about the idea of living in the present, it sort of became, it, it felt intellectually irresponsible not to at least engage with the versions of and, and versions of this idea in the Buddhist tradition. But so it's, uh, not too long ago, I wrote a, 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 an op-ed piece for the a New York Times piece about living in the present in which I talked about Aristotle as a source for this idea. And um, I was told by various friends not to read the comments uh, when you do things online so I didn't but my uh -huh. mother-in-law read the comments and told me that the comments were full of furious Buddhists who were very angry that I hadn't talked about Buddhism um, and my thought was well I did in the book uh, it would just be really complicated my second thought was if if you're a Buddhist who's made furious by someone writing an op-ed you may not be doing it right so um, <laughs> yeah. but, it, but it felt in the book that that it was it was really important to sort of engage with um, alternative versions of this idea. So in a way, what I suggest is, in, in a way my relationship was something like this. Um, there's a real puzzle about what one can get out of, say, um, mindfulness meditation without buying into aspects of Buddhist metaphysics that most people don't actually believe and that I don't believe. So, you know, if, if you're, it's, it's hard to really make sense of a genuine form of Buddhist mindfulness meditation on which it isn't about insight into the non-existence of the self. And this doesn't just mean, you know, there aren't immaterial souls or anything. It means that in the sense in which you and I think we exist, we just don't exist. And I think it's very hard to map your, to, to wrap your mind around. Um, and I don't really believe it. So, so there's this question, well, is there anything else this could be? And I think the answer there is, um, well, it could just be therapeutically valuable. It could make a psychological difference, sure. But I think it can also be a, a kind of way of training oneself to detach from telic activities and sort of goals and to appreciate the ongoingness of atelic activities. So that was an idea that I thought 
was somewhat it was both important that it's not it isn't quite the same as the the central idea of meditation for insight in buddhism but is indebted to um buddhism and that it felt intellectually sort of irresponsible not to try to engage with that even though in, in doing so i ended up writing about something that i'm not an expert on it really was a matter of trying to to read and learn enough that i could sort of channel experts and and say something about it that felt um intellectually plausible mm. so those were kind of my my questions about the book was there anything else that we haven't talked about that you hoped people would be able to take away or any kind of overarching message you wanted to to send out um I think we've covered a lot of uh, ground from the book. I suppose the other thing that I, I care about in a broader way is the idea of philosophy as something that's accessible to people and that people can find ways to enjoy reading. So it, if there was something else I would hope might happen if after people read the book, well, first I would hope that they would like it. Uh, <laughs> but then if they liked it, I, I would hope that they would it would make them think, hey, maybe there's some other philosophy books um, that will be worth reading. And I also hope that philosophers keep writing those books and write more books aimed at wider audiences. Um, I think that would be, that's a, a sort of larger desire I have for, for the future of, of um, the profession. That sounds great. Um, all right, well, let's do a thunder round. I'm gonna ask you three quick getting to know you questions and we'll call it a day. Okay, good? I'm all ready. Right. What is your favorite food and or drink? Um, that's a hard question because I, I generally love food. And in fact, <laughs> on ma many a day, I, I think that was a rough morning, but at least there's lunch. So oh. uh, um, nice. so it's hard to narrow it down. Bread in general, all, all forms of bread or all forms <laughs> of very good bread. I like sure. um, drinks. To be honest, it's probably American whiskey. Like bourbon Ooh. is probably the top, okay. uh, the top choice. Sounds good. Actually, you're not the first person that said that. It's interesting to me. Uh, and then where's your favorite place you've ever been? I would say I'm not generally someone who falls in love with places. And it happened mm. really for the first time after moving to MIT. We went uh, a couple of times to Maine mm -hmm. uh, for vacation. And Maine, there's something about it that is very magical. I think it, I mean, it has to do with the sort of glacial fjord-like coastline, which I don't really associate with the U.S. But mm. uh, And being near the ocean, but not on beaches that's my or not sandy beaches I which see. for me is the perfect uh, situation okay no beaches for you uh, i've actually never been to maine so i'll have to get there at some point i i mean not everyone loves it but it, I, there is a reason why it's you know vacation land and people yeah. people find it magical it's like hiking there's the ocean and there's also like crazy old theme parks we go to orchard beach sometimes with with my son and um it has a theme park right on the beach, so he loves it too, and uh, it's great. Well, sounds like fun. All right, last question. If you could wave a magic wand and change any one thing, what would it be and why? So this is one of those questions where philosophers should, should, were probably tempted to cheat and say, like, you know, like the if you had one wish, what would you wish for? It would be a million wishes or unlimited wishes. No, or no cheating. So I'm not going to cheat. I, I, my initial thought uh, is to say um, uh, if I could change one thing, it would be to end human suffering but then i think that's that's complicated because it's not clear that all human suffering is sort of regrettable so maybe maybe i could go back to the distinction between ameliorative value and existential value and say uh, 
get rid of all the, the, the forms of suffering and need that we'd be better off without. Mm -hmm. A true philosophical answer. Thank you. Well, I didn't, <laughs> that was great. <laughs> uh, Kieran, thank you so much for being on the show. The book is Midlife, A Philosophical Guide. I highly recommend it. It gets way more in detail into all this great stuff we've been talking about. So thanks again, Kieran. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Read, Learn, Live. If you liked it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. If you hated it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. And so it goes. 